Hello and welcome to Top in Tech. After months and months of speculation, the UK's Labour Party has finally reshuffled its front bench, its shadow cabinet. As we discussed on the podcast last month, the significance here is that Labour are hot favourites to win the next UK general election. So the changes now are significant because many shadow cabinet members are likely to assume these positions in government were Labour to take power at some point next year. The reshuffle took place against the backdrop of a public rivalry between the incumbent Lucy Powell and the up-and-coming Darren Jones, with both vying to become the next leader on science, innovation and tech within Labour. However, the leader, Keir Starmer, surprised the tech sector by appointing neither of them, and instead promoting Peter Kyle, who had been leading the Northern Ireland brief as part of the Labour front bench. My name's Colin Darcy, regular host of this podcast, and to help me and you make sense of this today is Megan Stagman, a director in GC's London Tech Policy Team. So, Megan, for those who listen to our podcast regularly, they would have heard us last month discussing where Labour is going on tech policy. And we were talking much more about the intricacies of what they will do on AI, what they might do on the gig economy, and so on and so forth. But we didn't really go much into the broader idea behind the reshuffle, even if we did discuss some of the individuals who were vying for that position. So could you just, taking a lens out from tech policy as such for now, can you just talk through why is the Labour Party reshuffling its front bench now? And what is the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, hoping to achieve from this? Sure. So to take the first half of your question about why now, I think there are a couple of factors leading to that. As you alluded to, the general election is now not that far away. And so I think we can expect this to be the last reshuffle of the Labour front bench before then. So Starmer's getting in place the team that he would actually have kind of leading these briefs were they to come to government. I think another factor in timing is that the Labour Party conference is now not far out. So that's about a month away. Um, And so putting these people in post now gives them a few weeks to get up to speed with their new briefs before that happens. And then I think a final thing that it's worth pointing to is the Labour strength and position at the moment. So with Labour having a 15 to 20% lead in the polls, Starmer obviously has far greater control over his party and his team than he has previously, meaning that he can make these quite dramatic reshuffles, probably quite more extensive in the changes that we've seen than we were expecting, without relative controversy and even just to kind of put the cherry on top, making a a policy announcement about not raising income tax under a a Labour government on the same day as doing a dramatic reshuffle. So I think all of that points to the fact that Starmer feels confident that now is a good time to do that sort of process. And then I think to the second part of your question about what is he looking to achieve, a few things. Firstly, the reshuffle allowed Starmer to align his front bench to that of the government. So We saw the machinery of government changes earlier this year, with DCMS obviously being broken out into different departments with the remaining kind of CMS part remaining to look at uh, media, advertising, music, etc. And then the DSIT department looking at more tech related policy areas. So the Labour front bench now reflects that and the shadow DCMS brief that was previously is now kind of shadowing DSIT and matched up like for like. I think there's also an interesting point about the slight change in titles. So it seems that Starmer has done this reshuffle in part to signal the kind of pro-business attitude that we've increasingly been seeing in recent months. 
So, for example, Angela Rayner previously had an explicit focus on future of work in her title, and that's now been stripped away. So I think it'll be quite interesting to see what that actually means for the policy direction of the party. We've already seen some U-turns in that area in recent months. So it seems that this reshuffle could be a further signal of that. And then I think in terms of what the team itself actually looks like, he's probably trying to achieve a few different things. There has, as I say, been a lot of change. So where we have seen promotion, it's largely been of those in the new Labour wing of the party. So Starmer is now surrounded by the kind of loyalists and a pretty strong group that will support him. But even though these changes were more significant than we expected, it's not all churn. Quite a few of the shadow cabinet members who were leading on the missions that are at the centre of the Labour Party agenda have been kept in place. So I think um, he's clearly planning to continue that focus on missions and transfer that into the upcoming manifesto, but also surround himself with a slightly different group of front benchers. There's always a tension in political parties, whether they're in government or whether they're in opposition, about the extent to which they try to unify the party by having different representation from different wings of their party as part of their, their team, or to have a team they're much more comfortable with and they're much more aligned with and who are likely to follow their direction. And it seems, from what you're saying, Megan, that Kirsten was very much moved towards the latter there He's very much got the confidence to go for a team to entrench how he sees the politics and the policy should evolve ahead of the next election. But the interesting question that I suspect many on the line would want to understand, and particularly those companies, organisations, NGOs and others who want to influence the Labour Party, want to influence their policy agenda, I guess is the question of who decides. So by that I mean, does the fact that Starmer now has a team he's much more comfortable with mean that that team are going to have greater license to create policy? Or is this, a, this more of a signal of centralisation of the leadership's control over policy making within the Labour Party? I mean, it remains to be seen. We'll see how the kind of coming weeks pan out. But I think probably the latter. I think it's quite unlikely that we're going to see any major policy announcements from these uh, new appointees in the coming weeks, at least, uh, maybe a bit further down the line. But I do think that we'll start to see them setting the tone for how they're approaching their briefs. So, for example, we saw previously Lucy Powell making off-the-cuff comments about licensing AI, and even though that wasn't formally the, the party's policy, and I think we'll start to see some of those comments kind of come through, even if they're not cemented policy positions yet. I think the other thing that will be interesting to watch is how much continuity there is between the new appointees and their predecessors, because I think this could be quite an interesting inflection point for a number of them and for the Labour Party to shed some of the policy commitments that it had previously made, but it no longer wants to follow through on. Um, so I mentioned already that we've seen some change in rhetoric and indeed policy on the kind of future of work issue. Similarly, there's been a lot of speculation about whether previous commitments to having an online safety bill 2.0 is actually sensible, given that we're only just now finalising OSB 1.0. And therefore, I think Labour might use this as an opportunity to say we've got a new digital secretary in place and actually they're not bound by the commitments made by previous front benches. I suppose it would have been... The dynamic would have been different if we were earlier in the political cycle when we were further out from a general election. But as, as we've seen, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, you've got the National Policy Forum process 
which will contribute towards the manifesto. Things are pretty locked in and the room for manoeuvre to have suddenly whole new policy agendas from these shadow cabinet members is, is quite limited as much by the dynamics of what Starmer wants to achieve in his control over the shadow cabinet as it is by the fact that we are so close to a general election. But let's go on to the tech-specific parts of the changes here, Megan. Peter Kyle, uh, as I said at the start, we were all talking before this reshuffle, whether it would be Lucy Powell, whether it be Darren Jones, with Johnny Reynolds as the business secretary keep an expanded portfolio. And it was none of them. It was Peter Carl. No one was talking about Peter Carl with regards to this brief before the reshuffle. So what is his background? What do we know about him? Yeah, definitely came as a surprise to me. I don't think we even paid a mention to him um, on our previous podcast about this topic and a surprise to kind of others in the tech sector as well. So I think kind of looking at his parliamentary career, he's definitely seen as a bit of a, a rising star in the Labour Party a representative of the new Labour segment of the party that I mentioned earlier and that is becoming more important. He's relatively new, so was only elected MP for Hove in 2015, was a narrow majority then, but he has expanded that in subsequent elections and has already held a number of shadow ministerial positions, which is why I think Starmer feels confident giving him this pretty controversial um, and hefty brief now. So he comes to this brief from his previous role as Shadow Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, obviously a very politically difficult role um, where he was seen as handling the different responsibilities pretty well. He's done other shadow ministerial positions as well, for example, Minister for Schools, Minister for Victims and Youth Justice. So I think those ones will be interesting in terms of what they bring to bear on his positions on online safety, for example. And I think he's also had some intersection with the tech policy area through his inquiries as part of the Business and Trade Select Committee. So he's been a long-term member of that and in that capacity was part of inquiries on, for example, automation and the future of work, another one on industrial strategy. So has had some interaction with these issues before, even if not as much as some of the other contenders for the, the role. So I think the, the final thing that's worth pointing to is his membership of various APPGs. So the all-party parliamentary group for new technologies was set up in 2021 with the specific aim of trying to educate parliamentarians about new technologies and help them to understand how kind of digital developments had an impact on policy and legislation. And then another APPG on the fourth industrial revolution, which had similar areas of focus. I don't think he's completely brand new to these issues, but certainly perhaps not as quite well credentialed as some of the, the others, like Darren Jones, for example. And then maybe just worth mentioning on his career prior to Parliament, he's had various positions in charities. So that includes acting as the CEO of a, a charity called Working for Youth, which provided support to unemployed young people and also worked as a, a special advisor within government on social exclusion policy for a while. So clearly is driven by social issues. And I think it will be interesting to see what the impact of that is on his views on tech policy specifically. So a relative unknown in terms of tech policy, but it's not that he's totally divorced from it and has some background and some exposure to it over his parliamentary and political career. So from those, Megan, what indications can we get about his approach or his likely approach and how he might think about tech policy perhaps a little bit differently to his predecessor? 
Well, as, as we said, it's pretty hard to say anything concretely at the moment because there are no explicit references or mentions out there. But from what we've heard, he is very different, apparently, from Lucy Powell. Uh, we've heard he has a lot of tech friends that he apparently travels to California at least twice a year. So I think we can imagine that he will be more pro-American tech companies than Lucy Powell was. And some of the more strict regulatory restrictions that she was looking at are unlikely to be carried forward by him. So, for example, I mentioned earlier uh, Lucy Powell's appetite for licensing for AI. I think it's quite unlikely that um, Peter Kyle would go for the same, but we will have to wait and see. I wonder as well whether his background in youth policy would mean that he would have a potential sensitivity to some of the child protection measures that we've seen both related to where the government's looking to go on things like encryption and the Investigatory Powers Act, but also in and around the elements of that related to the online safety bill. Certainly something that maybe if he doesn't have defined positions from the starting point, he'll have instincts that may shape how he thinks about some of these issues. And I would say not just child safety as well. So he's done a lot on, for example, sexual violence. So you can imagine him being quite keen on online safety from that perspective as well. He was part of the APPG for LGBT rights for a long time as well. So any kind of online abuse issues are probably an, an area where he feels quite passionately about. And I think as we've seen in this government, you get ministers who are ostensibly pro, pro-business in a crude phrase of pro-tech and sort of another crude way of characterising people. But that can be overshadowed where there are competing policy priorities. So even if Peter Carl is potentially more instinctively open to the role of these large technology companies in our economy and in our society than perhaps his predecessor was, were there to be one of these issues that you've just talked through, a big controversy over LGBT moderation, for instance, may get him looking in a much more sterner way towards the sector than perhaps it looks at this, this moment in time. We shall see. The final thing I just wanted to conclude on, Megan, you mentioned at the start that what was the original digital culture media and sport brief got broken up earlier this year with the digital part going across to where Peter Carl's going to be scrutinizing and the rump of it remaining as what is now known as the culture, media and sport department. We have a new shadow there on the Labour side and it's not that they're entirely without a angle on tech policy. For instance, CMS will still focus on advertising policy, which was a crucial part of the technology ecosystem. So I just wondered if you might give a few thoughts for us around the new appointee there, who is Thangan Debonair, and any indications, anything we can, we can glean from her track record of how she might approach that role. Sure. So there's been a like-for-like job swap between her and Lucy Powell. Um, she was previously shadow leader of the, the House of Commons for, I think, two years. So she was there for a while. And Lucy Powell is now going to take up her job while she does CMS. I think she's seen as a, a fairly serious and conscientious member of the front bench, but she didn't attract kind of many headlines or much political attention, I think, in her previous role. So it will be interesting to see what she does with this one. She has had other shadow ministerial appointments before. So she was shadow housing secretary for a while. And interestingly, she was actually DCMS shadow sec before, but only for a few months before she resigned from the front bench to undergo treatment for breast cancer. So we didn't really get much of a sense of her priorities then, but um, I think plenty of time for her to do so now. 
And I think the reason why she's been appointed now twice uh, into this DCMS brief is largely because of her background in creative industries and music specifically. So she trained as a cellist at the Royal College of Music, was a professional musician for a number of years. So is clearly very passionate about kind of music policy. And I think when we're thinking about that through a digital lens, might be interesting to see kind of what her views are on music streaming, for example, and whether that kind of comes back to the fore more than it has in recent months. She's also a long-term campaigner for improved access to the arts. When she was first elected in 2015 to Parliament, she said that that was one of her main reasons for getting into politics. So I think we can expect more on kind of social inclusion in that respect. She's quite passionate about broadcasting policy. She was one of a number of MPs who wrote to the then DCMS minister, very concerned about Channel 4 privatisation, saying that that would cause irreversible damage to to the UK creative economy um, and putting thousands of jobs at risk. And I think generally on the creative industries sector, she's been very much an advocate for them. For example, was very worried about the impact of Brexit on workers coming into the UK in that sector. So... Yeah, I think we can definitely expect her to be a champion for this. Uh, It seems like she's quite a good fit for the role. But we don't know much about, for example, you mentioned advertising and some of the other kind of more digital elements of her brief. She hasn't had a clear position on those so far. So it will be interesting to see what emerges in the coming weeks and months. Her main element to your point about Channel 4, the main element that I guess she will focus on the parliamentary sense will be the media bill, the draft media bill, which is going through its scrutiny process at the moment. Sounds like she has quite firm views around the broadcasting and media ecosystem that will feed into that. Probably not that dissimilar to where Lucy Powell was taking party in a broadly pro-public service broadcaster perspective. As you say, the advertising element with the online advertising program remains a big question mark. It's not quite obvious the extent to which she would want to prioritise that or focus on that in her brief from her background, it doesn't sound like it's something that she'll instinctively go for to start with. Lots of open-ended questions there, Megan, and we will keep an eye on this over the coming months, particularly as we see further developments within Labour policy and particularly as we get closer to a UK general election. But just thank you for taking us through that today. For those on the line, if you want to speak to Megan, you want to speak to other colleagues either in our tech policy team in London or to other UK political specialists at Global Council, then don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find our details at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. But thank you very much for joining us and see you next week. Bye-bye.